How many of you in this room have ever experienced disappointment? It's probably the most common human experience we can all identify with. It starts early in life. It really does. Uh, we can all remember some of our earliest disappointments. And if you have children, you're probably subject to their whinings every day of all of their little disappointments. And it's one of the reasons, actually, that parents can become very child-centered. Because we all hate being disappointed, and so we work very hard at not disappointing our children. It's just that kind of a thing we do. and um, But we, we do them no favors when we are constantly coming to their rescue in that regard. I can very, very, very clearly remember my first disappointment. I think I was probably five years old, and I had asked my mother for a chatty baby. Now, does that ring a bell for anyone in the 60s? We have a few hands. I wanted a chatty baby. And um, it was my dearest desire, but for some reason, my mother bought me a chatty Kathy, not a chatty baby. And um, I was deeply, deeply grieved. The chatty Kathy is a pull string doll. So back in the day, in the 60s, um, I'm talking like 1963-ish, 64, 65, maybe, you would, there was this string at the back and you pulled it and it said things. Did anybody have one? A chatty Kathy? Okay. So do you, do you remember these statements? Please change my dress. May I have a cookie? Do you remember? I remember exactly the intonation because I pulled that string constantly, but you had no control because you never knew when you pulled the string, what was going to come out of the doll. So, you know, you wanted to say something like, please feed me, but it would say, you know, can I have, you know, please change my dress. So the problem was my mother had got it wrong and I was really disappointed. But the following year I got a chatty baby at Christmas because my mother couldn't bear it for, for me to be disappointed. And then I had both, you see, my mother was raised in the war and went through a lot of hardship and she understood disappointment. And so she tried to make it so that I didn't get disappointed and she couldn't bear the fact that I was disappointed I didn't get a chatty baby. Yeah. And so I grew up entitled. I did. I grew up self-centered and entitled and kind of thought things should come my way. And if I asked for a chatty baby, I should get one. And that's kind of how we are. Can I just make a bid to the moms? Do a little heart check and a little, you know, establish a little metric how... How much am I trying to shield my children from disappointment? Because remember, we're Azares, not, you know, with that rescue in the right way, but not in the wrong way. So that you always are saying, what, what's the highest goal here? What's the highest purpose in my child's life? That's your metric. And if you have to disappoint your kid, maybe that's what you have to do sometimes, right? There's a bigger picture. So we're talking about the bigger picture today, too. I don't know what your disappointments were, but we all grow up self-centered and entitled. And we discover that life is not beyond being filled with disappointments and they accumulate. How we handle them can shape who we are and who we believe God is. If we're not rooted in God and in his word, we can actually end up twisting our theology to match our experience. So we might say, oh, I'm so disappointed by this thing that happened in my life. Why didn't God answer? 
Why didn't God come through in the way that I asked him to? You know, I don't think God really loves me. In fact, you know, I don't even think God's really a loving God. I think that's a myth. And so that's how it goes. We begin to draw conclusions based on our experience. And we can end up twisting theology. There's a bunch of responses that we have to disappointment. One of them is that we blame God. God should do things this way or that way and basically my way. And we get angry and distance ourselves from him when he doesn't do it our way. I know that we've all, you know, many of us in this room have experienced loss. As a young woman, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and oh my goodness, how we prayed, how we prayed, how we prayed. And I was not ready to let go of that friendship because I had a very close friendship with my mother. Anyway, I could see that the way this thing was going was God was not answering my prayer. It was a real test in my life. It was a real season of coming to the point of going, God, who are you anyway? What I read in your word, what I understand from your word isn't lining up with my experience. And I was at risk in those days for, for changing what I believed about God to line up with what I was seeing was the inevitable path for my mother. It was a huge test and a huge challenge in my life to stay rooted in God, to hold fast to this God that I knew. And this is why it's so important to know him and to know his word. So that was a big deal. And there's smaller things. I remember a, a young couple that we knew many, many years ago who, who we married and they had a lovely wedding and they went off on their honeymoon. And, um, that night, the night of the wedding, we got a phone call from this couple from the hotel room and they had opened all the presentation cards and counted up all the money and it was not what they thought it would be. You see, they had been expecting a lot more. I'm just reporting the story. I'm not going to make any comment. And they were so devastated that they didn't even know if they really believed God was who he said he was. It shook their faith. So it was that for them. What is it for you? What's the faith-shaking thing? In your life, we all have one or two. And will our faith-shaking moments define who God is as Azares? What will be the standard for us? Two, we can develop a loser mentality. And in the struggle or disappointment, we collapse in self-pity. And we think, well, what was I thinking anyway? Why bother hoping nothing ever works out the way I wanted to? God's heart is not really for me. And we wear this big L on our foreheads. I can tell you that I default to that. When things don't work out, I can default to the loser mentality. And what that does is it can actually derail you from pushing forward further into the purposes of God and apprehending all that God has apprehended you for. So when things are rough and you end up disappointed in retreating, you can end up not pushing forward and receiving what God has for you. 
The third thing is we become small picture people. We're so focused on what's going on right now in our struggle, we forget there's a bigger picture and that God's at work. And sometimes the painful situation is part of the path to a bigger thing, the goal that he has in mind. Struggles and disappointments can either drive us to him or away from him. Tonight we're going to talk about Hannah, an ordinary average woman just like you and me who faced enormous struggles and disappointment, yet somehow managed not to get stuck or bent out of shape. And instead, because of her response, she entered a bigger picture that was to shape the future of Israel and influence thrones. I want to stress again that Hannah was ordinary, average, everyday lady. I think so often we look at these biblical women, we place them on some kind of a pedestal. We have this category for who they are and what they did, and it's elevated because their story made it into the Bible. And we think, well, that could never happen to me. I could never be part of a bigger picture like Hannah was. But if we asked Hannah in those years, she would have probably not had one hot clue of how she was going to factor into this incredibly big picture and what her part would have been in it. She could have only said what was the comment on her everyday life and her everyday choices in response to God. That's all Hannah could have done at that time. So there's a very important backdrop to the bigger picture. So I could have that slide up just because it's, it's great to look at as a reminder. In our English Bibles, the book of 1 Samuel follows the book of Ruth, you'll notice. But actually in the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Samuel follows the book of Judges. It's just different. I'm not sure why. And if you look at the book of Judges, you will see that the very last words written in the book of Judges before 1 Samuel is this. In verse 25, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was mayhem. Those days were politically chaotic, and Israel was in a state of spiritual decay. It was an era when God would send judges to deliver Israel, but the freedom was always short-lived. The book of 1 Samuel is a book of transition. It outlines the seismic change from theocracy under Moses. Theocracy means that God himself was king. Theo, God. That's why we're theologians, because we study God, theocracy, God rules. That's, that was the mode of government over Israel. But there was a big shift coming because the people of Israel were demanding an earthly king because they wanted to be like other nations and have a king like the other nations did. So this was a really critical period in the history of Israel. And that's really interesting to note that this is the first time, remember this is important, sometime when the first, it's a first mention in the Bible, this is a new name for God that is introduced, and it's the Lord of hosts. I think that's one of my favorite titles for God. In the midst of the cry for human government, this name, the Lord of hosts, the captain of God and the holy ones, the angel armies of heaven, is a statement that underscores who really was in charge. So they wanted a human government, but there was the Lord of hosts who was sovereign and supreme. Samuel also marks a transition from priests to prophets as the central figures of God's dealing with Israel. The priesthood itself had become completely corrupt and was associated with gross sin. So a massive change. Israel was poised for a massive change that was about to occur. And the Lord of hosts was overseeing it because he was about to send somebody right into the thick of it. 
And that somebody was a little baby named Samuel. Now, we're going to go to the smaller picture. Zoom down to the city of Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim. Verse 2 sets the stage for the drama that was going on in just a household right there. Could have been Winnipeg. Anybody got drama in their household? Nobody here, right? So there was a household in Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim that had some drama in it. And in the household was a man named Elkanah, who, though he lived in the region of the Ephraimites, he was actually a Levite. Do you know what a Levite is? That was one of the tribes of Israel, and they were the priests. They were the priests. The whole family formed part of the priesthood. So this is interesting, because Ramah was not a Levite town, and there's some speculation as to what was Elkanah actually doing in terms of his Levitical commitments. We don't know. Anyway, verse 2 says this, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. And yes, we did get, we did pinch that name Penina for Bethlehem Live. <laughs> you might remember one of the star performers in the market was named Penina. That's where we got that name. Anyway, Hannah and Penina had two, had, Penina had children, but Hannah did not. And there you have it, ladies. The big, big problem. Though bigamy was forbidden by God in Genesis 2.24, Elkanah had taken a second wife, likely because he wanted to have children and Hannah was barren. Verse 6 emphasizes that it was in fact the Lord who had closed her womb. That's pretty explicit. There's no ambiguity there. And Penina, the other wife, was a virtual baby machine. She had so many numbers of sons and daughters, the Bible doesn't even record how many. It was just so many. Complicating this difficult dynamic was the fact that Elkanah, though I'm sure he appreciated Panina's fruitfulness, in fact loved Hannah and not Panina. And he showed preferential love for Hannah when the family would go up to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, and he'd give her a double portion of meat. So that was all really nice. Wasn't he nice? Such a kind-hearted husband who lacked discretion because really... What he did was only throwing further salt in the wound of Penina, who witnessed this and couldn't cope. Bitter jealousy boiled over into spite and mockery. Home life would have been hell. But each journey to Shiloh year after year was an escalated exercise in torture for Hannah, who was taunted, teased, and triumphed over by this gloating but unloved Penina. Their relationship was toxic, as Panina took every opportunity to provoke her and to mock her. Elkanah, in general, appears to have been kind of passive, except for the part where he took the second wife. And he was even a little bit clueless, because he says this. He asks her, Hannah, why are you so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He loved her, but what kind of love minimizes someone's suffering like that? What kind of love gives gifts, thinking that gifts alone can satisfy a desperate heart for hunger, for something deeper? It was patronizing, and he couldn't seem to enter into her grief to truly lift her or even pray with her or to trust God in faith that she would conceive. There's no mention of that. He wanted to be everything to her. 
You don't need this baby. You have me. As for Panina, if the passage out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks is true, then there was very little worship of God in her. What came out of her was poison. It was her object to inflict pain. In fact, Carolyn James tells us that Panina's jabs were actually aimed directly at Hannah's faith in God. Verse 6 describes Panina as one who vexes, which comes from the Hebrew root word that means harass, torture, like an enemy would do. The enemies of Israel would often say, where is your God? Where is your God? This was the kind of torture that she was aiming at Hannah. I can imagine it. Where is your God? He's closed your womb. What did you do to deserve that? She'd probably whisper to her children, God closed Auntie Hannah's womb. Go ask her why she doesn't have any kids. And the kids would go say, Auntie Hannah, why don't you have any kids? Can you imagine the level? This word was to torture and harass. This could have twisted Hannah, twisted her theology, and taken her down. So where was Hannah's heart in all of this? Was she cursed by God as the prevailing opinion of the community and Panina maintained? Was she a sinner that had brought this on herself? And we do this. Why isn't God hearing and answering? Am I a loser? Does he not love me? Do I deserve punishment instead of mercy? Where is he? But in her praying over all those years, God remained silent and did not answer her cry. But I love this quote by Carolyn James. She says, God's silence is not an accurate way to measure what he's doing. It's easy to forget he often does his best work when so far as we can tell, he doesn't seem to be doing anything at all. God's silent work was not in Hannah's womb. It was in her heart. There was a bigger picture, and God was shaping and positioning Hannah for a central role right in the middle of that bigger picture. Hannah's heart was pushing closer and closer into God, not farther and farther away. Hannah didn't learn how to deal with her problems by going to the religious establishment of the day and saying, how do I deal with my problems? Please, pastor me through this. Shepherd me. I need some perspective. Talk to me. Please, priests, pray for me. Help me. Why couldn't she do that? Because the priests were a bigger problem than she had. They were a mess. They brought no spiritual guidance. In fact, 1 Samuel 2 tells us that the priests were, quote, worthless men who did not know the Lord. Right? That was the condition of the priests. So Hannah got no help from them. But in her disappointment, she didn't blame God or withdraw from him. Rather, she clung to hope in him in remarkable, relentless faith. And you know, ladies, sometimes that's really all that you can do. In those times in your life that don't make sense, they don't line up with what you thought. They're disappointing. They're struggling. There's struggles. There's challenges. And you don't get your answers. I remember going to... Our pastor, I was in a pickle. I just, I was in a real funk. I was so depressed. It was when we were building this building. I'm just remembering that now. I was so depressed, like for almost a year. I was just harassed and depressed. The, th all, all the, the little litany phrase that kept going through my mind was, oh, ask me if I care. I just didn't care. I just went numb. 
And I remember our pastor came over from Vancouver and I was talking to him about it. And man, you know, he just totally failed me. It wasn't his fault. It was a design of God. He just kind of gave me a bunch of platitudes. And I think that was God's plan. Because I went away a sorrier case than I, when I sat there asking for help. But God wouldn't let me get help from him because God wanted me to go to him. And this is why we have to be so planted. This is why we have to be so rooted. So when my mother was dying, I just went deeper. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It didn't line up with what I thought. Until one day our little girl, Bethany, walked into the room and began to sing a song. She was only three. She could hardly talk. And she sang this song that was verbatim quote out of Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, she sang. I mean, the hair rose on my arms because I knew A, she couldn't sing, B, she couldn't even talk. And I knew at that moment, God's bigger than this. Okay, I might not get my way. I am seriously going to have my will crossed here. But God has a bigger picture. I do not understand it. One thing I know is him. And that's the heart of God for us as Azers, that we cling, that we cling to our hope in him when everything else fails, when nothing looks like it's lining up. We cling and we don't disappear. We don't withdraw. We don't sit down in the sand pit. We go deeper. That's what she did. We see this in Shiloh. She goes up to the tabernacle. She's weeping. She's pouring out her distress to God. And she's so fervent that Eli, who's watching her, takes her for a drunk and he rebukes her. I can't even imagine how she was manifesting her grief. But he took her for a drunk. And he was so spiritually dull in this morally degenerate atmosphere that he doesn't even recognize God seeking when he sees it. Pouring out your heart to God in the temple had become an unusual sight. Drunkenness following the feast was probably more likely a typical sight at Shiloh in those days. It would be understandable that in the pouring out of her heart that she'd express anger, but there's none of that here. Instead, Hannah casts herself on the Lord and prays a prayer of unimaginable consecration and devotion to the purposes of God, and she vows that day. Give me a son, and I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. This is a prayer that came out of a heart that was totally inclined towards him, not away from him. And the result of that prayer was going to have national significance. The Levites would serve between the ages of 20 and 50, but Hannah promised her son from early. Levites only had to serve for 25 years. Hannah promised her son for life. That she would offer her son to God's service for life is extraordinary. Her prayer was more than just asking relief from her pain. She wanted the honor of God more than simply gaining relief from her abusers. She wanted to make a positive contribution to God's program for Israel by providing a godly leader, not just to have a kid. Hannah explains herself to Eli, and he blesses her, and he says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. And this is the only place in the whole Old Testament where the priest blessed an individual. 
Hannah. I'm sure it's because he felt so bad he rebuked her for being drunk. But he blessed her. She returns home, and the bigger picture unfolds. She conceives and she bears a son. So I just want to pull out some remarkable things. How's our time here? I'm just... Okay. Recalibrating. There's some remarkable things that I want to touch on. Number one, Hannah keeps her vow. God's answer to Hannah's plight is miraculous, but even more amazing is the fact that she kept her vow. I think I would have welched on it. I don't know if I could have done it. She, this woman who so desperately longed for a child, makes good on her promise to dedicate him to the Lord. What mother in this room could do that? How many of you had a hard time dropping your kid off at kindergarten? That was hard enough. But to give your child for a lifetime? Who could separate themselves so willingly and sacrificially, their small child? And not only that, but place him under the care and mentorship of a backslidden, passive Eli and his utterly wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were in the ministry for what they could get out of it in terms of material compensation and sensual pleasure. That there is a horrible mentorship program. But Hannah knew that a vow was meant to be kept and she was fueled by a higher purpose. Though she couldn't see the bigger picture of who Samuel was to become, she dedicated him as a Nazarite, someone who was to be consecrated to God, a God-treasuring person. That's what she wanted for her son. My, I love, Thomas Constable is one of my favorite commentators. He says this, her faith became God's foothold for advance. I'm just going to say that one more time. Her faith became God's foothold for advance. I want to be that kind of woman. I want my faith to make a foothold for God to advance his kingdom and not an impediment. Hannah's declaration of praise was remarkable. She pours out her praise. Remember, this is at the onset. This is when she's giving her son over at the beginning of his life. She hasn't seen the bigger picture yet. You would think that she'd pour out that song of praise at the end when she saw Samuel become the big kahuna in Israel. Oh, yeah, that worked out. Yeah, my soul exalts in the Lord. No, she did this when she gave her son, at the moment when she gave her son away. There was reliefs of triumphant joy on what had to be the most difficult day of her life. And it was the same kind of song that Mary sang when she was pregnant with Jesus. And she went to visit Elizabeth. Hannah says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My strength is lifted high. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. No rock like our God. She wanted his glory. She had no guarantees of how it would turn out. Not one. She only knew God had a bigger picture and he had silenced the enemies. And somehow there was like this rushing of the Holy Spirit on her as she sang or spoke out this incredible, I don't know. I think it had to be a song personally. But anyway, it wasn't just about her private victory. It was about the praise of God. 
It's rich in theology. It's rich in prophetic insight. And she says this amazing statement. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. King what king? There had been no king. Remember, we're in the interim between judges and kings. There was no king. Meanwhile, she's prophesying about a king. And she's also prophesying, she said, his anointed, which is the word Mashiach, which is Messiah, which is the first mention of this word in the Bible. Hannah predicted the coming of Jesus Christ. Hannah. At the moment, she gave up her only child. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was this bigger picture? Through all of Hannah's sufferings, God was preparing her to raise one of Israel's godliest leaders, the mentor of the nation's first kings. He was going to usher the new reign of kings into Israel and restore the voice of God to his people. He was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He was like a prototype for all other, other prophets. He even began a school of the prophets. When the Israelites had rejected God as their king, God had withdrawn from close communion with them. But it was Samuel that restored the voice of God to Israel. Samuel was the first of the order of prophets prophets who mediated between God and the Israelites during the monarchy. Samuel became a kingmaker, finding and anointing both Saul and David. The prophet's office was even more superior to that of the king. From now on, when God had a message for the people, it didn't come to the king, it came through the prophets. The kings provided political leadership and the prophets gave people spiritual leadership. But the biggest, most remarkable thing to me was Hannah's influence. Because remember, she was just ordinary every day, right? Just living in a house full of drama. Hannah had a vital mission Carolyn James said what she learned about God and her suffering helped equip her, equip her son for every contingency in life. The theology of Samuel's mother lodged in Samuel's young heart and prepared him for the road ahead. Eugene Peterson, the man that wrote the message translation of the Bible, says this, Hannah is as significant both historically and spiritually as the three men who follow her in the Samuel narrative. Hannah would visit Samuel each year. She wasn't cut off from him, and she would influence him and shape him and guide him and teach him and equip him with her belief, with her knowledge of, I know who God is. I know this God. She truly had proved his faithfulness. And it was that very theology that Samuel carried through into his life, affecting kings, influencing king's theology. And you can find Hannah's words from her psalm of praise. You can find those exact same words reflected in the psalm of David. In fact, several psalms of David. David quotes Hannah. And at the end, I think it's of Second, uh, Second Samuel, David sings this incredible psalm, and the same words are in it. He's talking about the deliverance of God, that God is our rock and our deliverer, and they call her song and his song the bookends of First and Second Samuel. And so what we have here is the first song is sung by a humble, obscure Israelite woman and the last song by Israel's greatest, most powerful male monarch. 
echoing the words of this humble servant. The one influenced the other. One of the most profoundest things we can draw from this is the fact that God has a bigger picture and he can and will use it. Use us and whoever wants to be part of his agenda to further his cause and he will bless us and he will engage with us supernaturally just as he did with Hannah and he will work with us. Remember the book starts with that sentence, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophaim, and the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Just an obscure certain man with a certain wife who became a history maker. There are a lot of certain women here in this room right now. The Bible's already written, so you're not going to make it into that book. But there are books in heaven. History is still being written. We all have a part to play. Our faith, our walk with God, our holding fast, clinging to hope in him and knowing him will create a foothold for God to advance his purposes. How will we respond? For most of us, it's not a fertility issue. But we all know what some of those things are. Hannah was part of the greater picture of influencing Samuel to who would in turn influence kings. And I've asked Susan Zilke, my dear friend, to come and bring a testimony tonight. We always like to hear from somebody else just to kind of broaden the picture. Come on up, Sue. Um, just to give you a little insight, uh, we used to have some neighbors, and um, they were they went to our church. We loved them dearly, Reinhardt and Darcy Newfelt. And we were really sad when they announced that they were moving. So Ron and I used to stand in front of our bedroom window, um, which looked onto the Reinhardt and Darcy's bedroom window. Um, sometimes we could hear each other at night and say, good night, Reinhardt and Darcy. And they would say, good night, Ron and Mary. That's how close our bedroom bedrooms were on Mahoney Drive right here in Oakwood Estates. It was very sweet. We loved it. It was cool. Um, and then they moved. And so we would stand in our bedroom looking out the window saying, God, you know, Ron was stand at one window. I'm like, Lord, bring your choice into this house, man. We fervently prayed. Our faith became a foothold for the advancing of God. And then this family moved in. <laughs> that was me and my husband and no children at that time. Oh, no, one child, Scott. Thank you, Mary, for that great intro. I am Susan and I am from the north end of Winnipeg. No, not this north end, the north end. That's where I grew up. And I had to give you the background of that. That's going to lead eventually uh, to being neighbors. I did not yell out the window of my bedroom over to Mary. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a typical Ukrainian immigrant family in the north end of Winnipeg. I spent most of my growing up days dreaming about all the things that young girls dream about. I was pretty athletic. I loved sports. One day I told my parents, you know, the only reason I go to school is to play basketball. I'm sure that made their day. I grew up in a very traditional church and had a pretty good understanding of church life in a, in a traditional setting. Now, as I was growing up, peer acceptance became more and more of a driving force for me in my life. I had two older brothers. They were much older than me. 
My parents were very old-fashioned, so to speak. So when I entered grade seven and showed up in, in class at a brand-new junior high school in my old-fashioned nylon pants and Kmart sneakers, and I didn't have a clue what Lee jeans and Adidas runners were, it was a bit of a problem. But that was the beginning of a very, very unhealthy, yet so typical teenage, young adult party life. Anything to fit in, that's how it worked for me. Parties, you bet, 12 years old. Booze, right on, yeah, dope, sure, why not? Anything to be cool. It's all fun, right? And I wanted to be part of that group. It was important to me. Now, the good news is that I actually did grow out of that. I got my act together, so to speak. I went off to university, found a career, found a man, eventually had a few children, got a nice house in the suburbs next to this pastor's family. (laughs) And all those childhood dreams are starting to come true. It's going pretty good. But in 1991, just 10 days following my son's first birthday, my oldest brother passed away from lymphoma cancer. He was 46 years old. I thought that was old at the time. I'm well past that now. Now, it was somewhat sudden, and it really caught me off guard because I really didn't see it coming. It hit me, and it hit me hard. It was actually the first time in my life that I honestly started to ask, and why is it that I'm here on this planet? I was 31 years old at that time. What is the purpose of my existence? And I remember one day saying to my sister-in-law, so uh, this is it? Life? You're born? A whole bunch of stuff happens to you, and then you die? Except I don't think I used the word stuff. And I decided, yeah, I think this is it. And I made up my mind that I was going to live life to the fullest from that day on. I wanted to have a good time, a big house, and travel everywhere. I was now on a quest to become as well off as I could and to do as much as I could to have a good time before it was all over. Now, Murray, that's my husband, And I were living in rural Manitoba at the time and in a very isolated area. I told Murray one day when he got home from work, I decided to go back to school to do my education degree. So can you try to get a transfer to the city because he's a conservation officer or somewhere close to the city because that's what I'm going to do. And just so you know, I'll be going with you or without you. Thankfully, Murray did end up getting that transfer. I ended up getting into the after-degree program at U of M. I had already had my Bachelor of Physical Education, so it was only a two-year program. I graduated in 1997, and now I was ready to go out and teach, planning the good life, looking forward to being oh-so-successful. Now, one of my major focuses in those years was also to build financial success and security into our lives. I spent a lot of time studying the world of investments, 
and had moved into some really serious and risky investment strategies in the years following my brother's death. I think I used to tell Mary about all the books I was reading. She would just look at me with this glazed look. <laughs> in the summer of 1998, something happened that my, rocked my world to the very core. I don't know if any of, of you remember it, but the stock market actually crashed. In a matter of weeks, what I had worked so hard to build in my portfolio came crashing down. Money that I didn't own because I had borrowed money to invest money came crashing down. So I was losing money and going into debt at an alarming rate. And Susan, well, guess what? She crashed too. I was struck with such anxiety and panic that I was not able to even function on a day-to-day -day basis. Eating was impossible. Sleeping was impossible. I had two young children. They were aged um, eight and two at the time. Parenting was pretty much a write-off. Half the time, I didn't even, wasn't even aware of where my children were because I spent most of my day pacing in the house and trying to find a way to make the constant burn of anxiety in, the, in my back and chest go away. Now, these were honestly the hardest days of my life. I would never want to repeat them. And I didn't know how I was going to make it. And I started to think really seriously dangerous thoughts at that time. I really felt like I had literally just blown my entire life and I started to just run out of hope. But mostly, I just didn't know how I was going to cope with the daily physical stress of the anxiety. At one point during this time, it was in the summer when this happened, uh, I decided to take my kids and go out to my parents' cabin, uh, just try to get away from it all. But it was out at that cabin that I had one of the very worst nights. I was lying in bed. My mind was racing over and over again about how I was going to get myself out of this excruciating predicament, which is what I had been doing for weeks. But that night, as I was lying there trying to figure it out, I had this split-second thought. It was like a split-second, like that. And that thought was about God. It was... I, I, never think, I never thought about God, ever, like for years. Maybe when I was in the church when I was younger, but God would have not been something I would have thought about. And it just kind of slid through my head somehow, and then I fell asleep. I woke up in the morning, and I went over to get a bite to eat, try to get a bite to eat, because classically what would happen every morning is I would get up, put some food to my mouth, and then gag because I wasn't able to eat because the anxiety was too intense. And just as I was gagging at the kitchen table that morning, I stood up out of my chair, I literally threw both my hands in the air like this. And this is what I said. I said, God, if you are real, would you please, please help me? And I put my hands down and I thought, wow, Susan, <laughs> you're in big trouble. Because first of all, if God is real, the last person on this planet he is going to help is you. And I left it at that. And I drove back to the city. And just as I was driving into my house, I had a sec another split, one of those split-second moments. 
where I glanced over at my neighbor's house, who I knew knew a lot about God. And I thought, wow, never thought of that before. Maybe I could talk to Mary, and I thought, right, I'm going to do that. Are you kidding me? Nobody knew about this, by the way. None of my friends. My, the only people that knew were my parents. Murray's parents didn't even know this was going on. And in the days ahead, I found myself thinking more and more about talking to Mary, uh, but I didn't have the courage to do it until one day, um, Bethany, five-year-old Bethany, showed up on my doorstep and asked Kayla to come over to play with her, two-year-old Kayla. That's never happened before. I ended up at Mary's kitchen table. It was actually the same day that I had made an appointment to see my doctor to get some very intense prescriptions for Prozac because I couldn't find another solution to deal with this anxiety I was in. And I sat down at the kitchen table with Mary. I shared my story and many tears and a box of Kleenex later, her first words to me were this. You know, Susan, God really loves you. And I remember thinking, what? That definitely caught my attention. And it was actually the first glimpse of hope that I had had in weeks. It was a glimpse, and I wasn't sure what it all meant. But Mary went on to explain it to me. She shared the gospel with me, and for the first time in my life, I actually heard who Jesus really was. And I gave my life to him right there at her kitchen table, hoping that my desperate search for a solution to this mess of a life of mine was actually found. And at that time, I didn't realize how much of an answer I had found. So I walked away a new person that day, and over the days and months ahead of my life, it changed in so many ways. Murray was so happy when I told him what happened that day when he got home from work. What I wasn't aware of was that my prodigal husband was so concerned about my lifestyle that he had been praying that I would meet Jesus. He didn't think it was going to happen that way. He told me that after he was really freaked out. And since then, one of the coolest things that happened to me was I became a teacher at this amazing place called the King School. And I've been teaching here for 17 years. It's been a great place to invest my life. I have loved being a part of this community. Now, I've had a few challenges along the way. I have learned that being a Christian doesn't solve all your problems. However, I can say I am a different person with a very different focus and foundation for my life. A few years back, I I had a tough season. I went into the summer really discouraged and not wanting to come back to the school. It was actually a really dark summer for me. I found myself praying for a new start in life. And in a very low moment, I remember thinking, oh, I've wasted 14 years of my life in this place. Lord, get me a new job. Certainly there must be something else you want me to do. But I didn't get a new, he didn't answer that prayer. I didn't get a new job. I was checking wanted ads and everything. I returned to the school in fall, dragging my feet, came back in. And then some, that 
something started to happen. In January, I became the vice principal of the middle years in the school, and I found new purpose in my career. In June that year, I was asked if I would take up the role of principal for the following school year. And then I did take up that role. The following uh, fall, I stepped into the role of the principal. And wow, can we say steep learning curve? White knuckling all the way through the whole year. But, you know, as June drew close, I started to really doubt that this was the position for me. It's a hard job. And I'm a bit of a wimp. And then I remembered, you know what? The school board said to me, I could take a year to, to try it. And if in June, if I didn't think it was what I wanted to do, I could let them know. And, you know, that would be fine. They'd give me a one-year trial. The school board didn't seem to remember that, but I remembered that. <laughs> so there was a, a weekend. I, I was like so there. I was like, oh. I was fantasizing about how it would feel to not have all these problems to think about anymore. Just, I just resign and oh, it would all be gone. I'd be free. So I went into the weekend telling myself that I would make a decision by Monday. And so that weekend, Mary and I, I think we had coffee. And I recall telling her, you know, several of good reasons why I thought it would be wise for me to step down. And I remember saying to her, you know what, I just want my life back. This job is too hard. It consumes every bit of my life. There's all these things I have to carry. I just want my life back. And she encouraged me to continue praying because I had admitted to her that I hadn't heard from the Lord regarding this decision I was about to make. Now, the very next morning, so I said, sure, that's great. I'll do that. The very next morning, I opened my Bible and devotion and the very first thing I read was this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's out of Matthew 16. Oh, I went, I think I just heard from the Lord. Ooh, except usually when I hear from the Lord, it's kind of like, I I have anointed you to do this, Susan. When you are weak, I am strong. Susan, I am with you. I will give you strength. This didn't quite feel like that. (laughs) It was different, but it hit me right between the eyes and in other places as well, probably. I knew it was from God. And I knew that he had just said to me was true and was significant. And the next morning, I I got up and I went to church, and there was a a significant message. And I remember going up after the service and literally getting down on my knees and saying, Lord, I give you my life again. You can have it. Do whatever you want with it. Whenever, anything you want me to do. If you want me to be a principal of this school, I'll be the principal of this school. If you want me to work 14-hour days, I'll work 14-hour days. If you want me to worry about all the things that there have, I have to worry about, I'll do it. Lord, my life is yours. You can have it for whatever. And that actually was a massive turning point for me and how I walk out life day to day now. It's still hard, actually. 
life can deal you so many dis- use so many disappointments and challenges, can't it? I actually find the disappointments the hardest. I really struggle with disappointment. But I am convinced that God is working his plan in it all. I do my day-to-day part, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he works out the big plan. And at the end of the day, it's really only God's grace that gets me through it all. He, God is so gracious with me. I have many stories of his affirmation in, in all of it. And I'm very blessed to be serving here at the King School with an incredible team and a wonderful school community. And best of all, a lot of really, really, really precious kids whom I love. My life is so much richer because of this school. And what impacts me the most, though, is knowing that the work I do here has eternal purpose. Purpose that I probably can't even totally wrap my head around. Well, I know I can't. Because they're God's purposes. And when I do struggle... All I have to do is remember who I was and where I was headed before the Lord saved me. And there's no doubt in my mind that he has me on the right track. His purpose is for my life. It's the best plan ever. I have the privilege of knowing Susan from the moment I met her. I don't know how many years ago that was. I'm going to go with 22. That was a long time ago. So, so I know. I know the journey. I, I knew her way back in the day. So for me, I have gotten to watch the, the purposes of God advance as the Lord took someone so rough, so completely outside of, of him. And he brought her right in, right in, right in, and then further in, and then further in, and then further in. And, you know, I was in the prayer furnace the other day, and I just happened to look out the window, and my, my eyes fell on the, the window of the school where the principal's office is, and I thought, good night. Susan Zilke is sitting in that chair. Truth is stranger than fiction. How did this happen, Lord? As Ron and I stood there praying out that window. And we prayed in this family. And then this family went through real disappointment and drama. And then they came to Christ. And now she's providing a foothold to advance the kingdom through about 300 students right now, and it just keeps rolling in and rolling in. The Sikh community is barging the door down trying to get into the school because they just want to be here in this atmosphere. And Susan gets to sit in the privileged place of the principal for such a time as this. At some cost to her, but that's what Azers do. They're led along And in faith, they say, yes, Lord. They listen and they hear from God. And so why we want you listening to God is for precisely the reason Susan just mentioned. 
Now, I could talk to you till the cows come home, and some of those things will go great words, but they'll roll off of you by tomorrow. But when the Lord speaks, it changes everything. And Azers are women who hear God, number one, who listen, who give themselves, who open up their ears to hear and listen and then hear. What is the agenda of God? How are we being shaped right now? And how does he want us to advance his kingdom? We're poised to be part of a bigger picture. So some of the questions are, can you describe a time in your life when you were deeply disappointed? How did this affect your relationship with God? So think about that for a moment. Jot a few thoughts. Then take some time on your own. List some of the lessons we've learned from Hannah's life. Take some time to listen to God and ask him, Jesus, what would you like to say to me personally regarding these lessons? Jesus, what would you like me to do about it? So just take something that you learned about from her life today and make that applicable as the Holy Spirit makes that clear. Ask the Lord, do I live as if there's no bigger picture? Ask him to speak to you about one change that you can make. And there will be one thing that you can make. And then take some time to share your answers and pray with one another.